Well, we're, like I said, we're, we're continuing our study in 2 Corinthians, and um, I want to ask you a question. As we pray continually for churches throughout the upstate and throughout our city, I'd like to ask you, what would you say is the biggest problem with the Christian church in North America? I mean, as you drive around our city, as you drive around the United States and you look around at all the churches that we've got, as you look at around and talk to all the different Christians that are in our neighborhoods, what's that? Too loud? That's a little too loud. It did? How about that one? Is this one good? We'll, we'll just shut this one off. I was really hitting a hard point right there and kind of stole the thunder. Let me revert. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, so as you think about it, like, what really is the problem? Because obviously in our culture, there's a growing mistrust of the church, of organized religion. So what in the world is going on? Because people will say, I love Jesus, but they won't go to church. It's almost like we have some kind of disease of leprosy, and yet people are like, I like Jesus, but I don't like his people. So what's the problem? What have we missed in the American church. You see, I think that in many ways, like Esau, we've sold our birthright for a bowl of porridge. That we have seen the immediate satisfaction of something to fix the problem. And we have sold what God has intended for us, namely the ends of the earth, and we've satisfied ourselves with just gimmicks quick fixes, things that look shiny and are pretty awesome right now. And we failed to make disciples. I think that really is the root of the problem is that we are not making disciples because we are not being disciples. And I'm talking about the church at large. I'm not coming here with a sledgehammer to the people of Redeemer. But we also have to claim that for ourselves too because we are part of the church in North America. And at its root is that we are failing to make disciples. We've we've settled for flash and pizzazz. We've we've settled for temporary fixes and gimmicks. And the Lord would say there's a better way. It's a slower way. It's a quieter way. It's a simpler way. It's the way of the cross. You see We've adopted many of the tools that the world uses. We thought that if we could attract more people to come into our churches through some kind of slick slogan on the outside of our churches with some kind of really cool phrase, people would say, hey, hey, that, that's a really cool sign. Are you on God's milk carton? That's a sign that I saw one time. That's pretty depressing. Are you on God's milk carton? Come to church. And so, so we, we think that if we have some kind of really cool flashy smoke, lights, loud music, something that excites people, then they'll come. But see, the problem is they don't stay around for smoking mirrors. Because what people want in our culture is not more entertainment. They've got plenty of that if you go to any... I mean, we've got a gluttony of entertainment. It's called Netflix binging. It's called having the greatest cable package. It's... it's it's, it's busying ourselves with so many things. There's no lack of entertainment or distraction in our world. And so what our culture and what our world is longing for is something transcendent. Something that 
sounds a little different than what they hear Monday through Saturday. And I think the Lord would say, you've sold people a bill of goods, church. You've sold people services and, and really cool entertainment packages and programs. You've given them ter- tickets to a circus, and the Lord is whispering in our ears, even as a small church, don't fall for it. Don't fall for the tools of the world. And he's whispering to us, follow the way of the cross. You don't have to be flashy. You don't have to tell everybody that you're serving your neighbor. Just do it, is what Jesus would say. Don't hashtag everything. Don't tag everybody to let them know that, man, I am loving my neighbor. Jesus says, do it in the secret. Do it in the dark. Because if you really believe that your Father in Heaven is watching you, then it doesn't matter that everybody else sees you. But see... We don't really believe that, do we? And I think that in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us yet another example of not just what we struggle with, but what the Corinthians were struggling with and what Israel was struggling struggling with. That's seeking the applause of others. Seeking the flashy and the glitz and the glamour of the world and, and making a difference and doing this really strong and mighty thing by the power of the flesh. And here we see that the super apostles, what, what, what were they doing? They traveled to this thriving port city of Corinth, and they came to the Corinthians and said, you know what, Paul is okay, but he's kind of a loser, don't you think? I mean, he's kind of squirrely when it comes to talking to you. He's really strong and powerful in his letters, but when he shows up, he just kind of whispers. Look at him. He's, he's kind of a loser, too, because look at all the, the bruises on his back. And, you know, God gave us victory in Jesus. And Paul is suffering. What, what's, the, what's, what's going on with that? And so the, these super apostles have come to the Corinthians and they've challenged Paul's very ministry. And so for the next three and four chapters, Paul is going to not only defend his ministries, but he's going to get right down to the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. See, what, what does he say in 2 Corinthians 3? See, because he's coming full circle. He started in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 to talk about these super apostles. And he says in chapter 3, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again to you? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are letters of recommendation written by Jesus. Verse 4 of chapter 3, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not, and this is key, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You see, these super apostles had shown up on the scene and they had basically started to take credit for what Paul had done. And you can see that. We're not going to have time to get into it in the end of our chapter in verses 13, 15, and 16. You can go there in your own time. But they were really taking and building on Paul's foundation. You see, Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved them like a father loves his children. He had not spared any expense. In fact, he had paid for his own trip to go there, to be with them, and he worked while he was among them so that he didn't have to ask them for money. He was like a father who gave them everything. And as a result, like the prodigal son, they said, that's great, I'm going to go cash in my chips. And here Paul is all bruised and battered and torn, 
And the very reason why he had that is because he opened his hearts to the Corinthians, because he laid down his life for the Corinthians. And so the super apostles come sweeping in, and they're muscle-bound, they're strong, they got the latest fashion, they're puffing out their chests. They're saying, if you want to be a real Christian, then you need to live a life of victory. Don't listen to Paul, because look at him. He's just a scraggly old man who's weak, who's poor, he's suffering. And that really is at the heart of what I mentioned just a moment ago. What, what we struggle with in our culture is that very tendency to look at the things that are poor, suffering, and weak, and to think that God has forsaken that. We look at the exterior, we look at the, the glitz and the glamour, and we think that that's really what we're called to do and to be. You see, these are the tools of the flesh that Paul talks about. Power and greed, self-sufficiency. And so how does Paul respond to them? How does Paul respond to them? He says, Corinthians, don't rely on what you see. You remember that from chapter 4? He says, don't look to the things that are seen because they are temporary, but the things that are unseen are the things that are eternal. And so Paul, in this 10th chapter, is driving the point home that it's not the strong and the proud and the boastful that will inherit the earth, but it's the meek that will inherit the earth. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 together. Verses 1 through 6. How does Paul begin? Here's my, here it is. Let me just look at Paul. Uh, how does Paul say, say this? Verses 1 through 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness or humility and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. He's quoting the, the super apostle saying he's, he's, he's a mouse when he's with you, and he, but he's a lion and coming ravenous when he's writing letters to you. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. And so we see in this first paragraph, heavenly thinking produces humble obedience. Heavenly thinking produces humble obedience. Obedience. You see, we see this from the very beginning. Paul, I who am humble and gentle, like who? What does he say? Like Jesus. Like Jesus, who was humble and gentle, because this is the very thing that the Pharisees and Sadducees were leveling against Jesus. Right? A Messiah doesn't die. A Messiah comes and destroys Caesar. But Jesus says, no, a Messiah most definitely dies for his people. And Paul, in his own ministry, is modeling what the Christian life, what discipleship looks like, what following after the way of Jesus looks like. It looks like humble obedience. You see, it's easy to forget that our king is first humble and gentle and beaten and bruised and scorned. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't, we don't really like that peace. That's the hard piece of the Christian gospel, that if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. 
It's not a promise of fixing all of our problems. In fact, it seems like the problems get harder because the Christian life is not according to the flesh. Look at verse 3. Not according to the flesh. Right? Not by the flesh. And then he says in verse 4, weapons and warfare against spiritual realities. You see, our faith is also not meant to just sit still. Our faith is meant to advance, is meant to take territory, as it were. And so when we think of this weapons and warfare, if you're like me, I'm thinking William Wallace all the way with a broad-edged sword and going in and taking ground and making people look stupid because they don't know what the truth is. Is that really what Paul's talking about? Is he talking about waging war against the spiritual realities by coming and and brandishing a broadsword and just saying, you know what, I'm just going to tell you the truth, brother. And if you don't like it, too bad. That's what the Bible says. No, what what, what Paul is telling us is just like Jesus was telling us, is that it is the way of humble sacrifice. That is the weapon of righteousness that he mentions. He he mentioned this before. Weapons and warfare goes back to chapter 6. I'd encourage you to write it down. Chapter 6, verse 6, he talks about weapons of righteousness. And so how are these weapons wielded? How, How is this territory meant to be advanced? It's meant to be advanced not through triumphalism, not through trying to make other people look like they're foolish, That's not what taking thoughts captive and fighting against spiritual battles is about. Wielding of these weapons of righteousness is through sacrifice because the very previous verses, Paul says this, through these weapons of righteousness are wielded through afflictions, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonment. And when those things come at you to destroy you, You meet them with purity, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, love, and knowledge. Knowledge. So let's go to the next verse. What is Paul saying here with taking every thought captive? See, the Christian faith is a thinking faith. Our faith is not just a blind leap into the dark. We don't just say, ah, I don't really get it, but you know what, I'll accept it. No. Paul says you can understand these things if you spend time reading and thinking and doing the hard work. See, it matters how we view the world and the people around us. The super apostles had challenged Paul and his authority because he didn't look like what they thought you should look like. And so what does Paul's ministry entail? It's the same thing that Jesus' ministry entails. I hope, I hope that we've been able to see that throughout 2 Corinthians, that when you look at Paul, what, what he's doing through his own life is mirroring, is following the example of Jesus through suffering and self-sacrifice. And in that same mimetic or, or, or representative or modeling that Paul does for us, that's how we are to live our lives too following after the way of Jesus. And so how does Paul and what, what is the goal of Paul and Jesus' ministry? When Jesus shows up on the scene, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repenting is technically a changing of the mind. And so the Christian faith first starts with having your mind transformed and changed to think the thoughts of God. In fact, it's literally here to take into captivity your thinking, to, to take your thoughts and then carry them off to an island 
and make them captive and realize that you are not a slave to your thoughts, but that God has given you a mind to be able to engage with what's happening around you. In fact, as one author wrote, he said, a noble and godlike character is not a thing of favor or chance, but it is the natural result of continued effort in right thinking, the effect of long cherished association with godlike thoughts. But we see in the next verse that the Christian faith is not just a thinking faith. It's not just about getting more knowledge. This author goes on to say, People imagine that their thoughts can be kept secret, but they can't. They rapidly crystallize into habit, and habit solidifies into circumstance. It's very easy in our culture with so much, a plethora of teaching. If you don't like what I'm preaching right now, you can hop on a podcast and you can listen to something right now. And we have all of this information, all of this great teaching. But Paul is saying, while thinking is very, very important, it's not the only thing. It's not the only thing. Our thoughts will never stay secret, but they will always crystallize into circumstances, into how we view and interact with the world. Because look at 6. Look at verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. But even before that, take every thought captive to do what? In order to obey Christ. I fear that our love for more knowledge as North American Christians will fool us into thinking that we are Christians. Just because you and I can wax eloquently about the hypostatic union of Jesus does not mean we know this Jesus. Just because we can quote systematic theologies or just because we can understand these things doesn't mean that we actually have been affected by these things. The Christian faith is not just cognitive. But he says, I want to take every thought captive so that it matters, so that it has effect in my life. Obedience is the goal that taking these thought ca- these ca- thoughts captive to obey Christ teach everything what did he say what did Jesus say in the, in, in, in his um, great commission teaching them to obey all that I've commanded don't just teach them teach them how to obey and so our obedience so it's, so it's not just merely knowing or, or loving your neighbor in your mind. It's not just saying, man, I really need to love my neighbor. Okay, I'm going to think good thoughts about my neighbor. Oh, good. They're awesome. No, it's actually opening your eyes up and then going to your neighbor and loving them. To quote a, a, a great band, DC Talk, love is a verb, right? And so God wants us to love people with our life and not to fool ourselves into thinking that more knowledge equates with knowledge of God. It's a very dangerous place to be. I've been there many times in my life. So how do you know? Well, when your schedule gets interrupted by other people and you're not bitter, that's how you'll know. That's how you know that you're really understanding the Christian life when somebody calls you up and you happily say, let me come and help you. That's how you'll know when you truly love your neighbor. Look at our next paragraph, verses 7 through 12. Paul is literally saying, it's obvious, Corinthians, look what's before your eyes. 
If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself just that just as he is Christ, so also are we. So what Paul is getting ready to say in this next paragraph, and I'm, I don't have time to read the whole thing, but he's saying that we are called to be commended by God and not to be conformed by the world. We are can be, to be conformed into that that looks and acts and sounds like Jesus. But see, we can't just passively look at the world of power and success and influence. We, we can look at that and we can think that that's what's eternal. And then we can be led astray. And see, if you look at a lot of the popular um, preaching of the day, it is the slick. It is the well put together. It's not the timorous type person. It's the person who's got the shiny suit and those kind of things to be able to attract large amounts of people. It looks a lot like super apostles. To, when, you, when you look at our world, I'm talking about in our world right now. And so folks can disdain what is known as old-time religion because it's not as cool. The music isn't as neat. The preaching isn't as slick or, or well put together. But it's just as faithful. But see, that, that's the problem, is that that can also happen on the other side, too, is that the folks that are going to more traditional churches, more old-timey religion-type churches, can look and say, well, they, they don't have all of their doctrines together. They don't have all of their stuff together. And so what is really the problem? What is really the problem is what Paul says here. He says that you are comparing yourselves to others. You are wanting people to conform to your image. See, we measure people by our standards if we're honest with ourselves. They don't have that conviction. They don't do the thing that I think they ought to do. See, we, I, I, I wish and I hope that at Redeemer, when we see a church that's different than the way we do things, our reaction, our knee-jerk reaction is instead of scoffing, I pray that our knee-jerk reaction would be to celebrate. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't do things like that. But you know what? The gospel is being proclaimed. The gospel is being preached. And that, that really is the seed and the most important element. That's a little different. It's clothed a little differently. But you know what? They're, they're not being less faithful to what God has called them to do. You see, look at verse 12. When we measure, but when they measure themselves by one another and then compare themselves with one another... They're without understanding. They are literally not putting things together as they ought. That's what this understanding idea. So God is saying, I want you to understand that I have given you a certain tract of land that you are called to cultivate, you are called to nurture and cherish and take care of. Don't look over in somebody else's field and say, man, they really need to put some roundup on that or they need to, they need to you know, hoe those rows a little deeper. No, we need to let our convictions be our convictions. This goes on a corporate scale as well as on the minutia on the individual level as we interact with one another. Because I hope and I pray that all of us have different convictions about different matters, whether it comes to schooling, health, or whatever. I pray that we have different convictions. Because then that celebrates the one central figure of our faith, namely Jesus. we've got to do our job, focus on what God has called us to do. 
And don't look around and worry that people aren't doing it the way that we think they should. I can't believe that church is doing that. May we not start there, but instead may we say, God, what have you called us to do as a church? And to get behind that and to celebrate that. But see, we can't can't read these verses apart from the previous chapter that we looked at last week, 2 Corinthians 9.8. Because, yeah, it's true that heavenly thinking leads to humble obedience, that God has called us to be commended by Him, not based upon what people think about us and whether other people are conforming to, to the way we think they should be living their lives. But then lastly, sufficiency comes from God. This is what we see in our last paragraph. But it can't be read apart from chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, God is the one who makes anyone's ministry or life sufficient. Sufficiency comes from God. See, the essence, like I mentioned at the very beginning of our time together, the essence of the problem in Corinth and in Greenville is a problem with discipleship is a problem with following after the ways of Jesus. The simple, quiet ways. Because it's first forgetting who the gospel is about. It's first forgetting what our Christianity is about. See, the the super apostles have substituted their slick presentations for the gospel. And the Corinthians began to think that physical strength And vigor was all that mattered. They had forgotten that the gospel requires us to continually lean on the all-sufficient God to provide for us. You see, the message of Jesus and Paul is that we must first come to an end of our own sufficiency. And until we come to an end of our own storehouses, we can never really understand or have a relationship with God. Until you and I are able to say, I repent I can't do this on my own. I need someone and something else outside of me. We'll never really know God. We'll never really know God until we say, I'm undone. Sew me back up. You see, we see this, that this problem in Corinth was the same problem in Jerusalem. Right before the the exile, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. See, this is what, you see those quotation marks in verse 17? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, that comes from Jeremiah 9. Let me, let me read these two verses in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I I delight, declares the Lord. Let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows God. See, God is the all-sufficient one. He is the fountain from which love and justice and righteousness flow. He is the fountain. And we go to the fountain and we find our life. 
He's not expecting us to drum up some kind of righteousness or justice or love for neighbor on our own. He says, look what I've done for you. Drink from this water. Come to this fountain, this ever-flowing fountain that has no lack, will never run dry. And from pulling from that fountain, then you can then go and do righteousness and justice and mercy and love. You see, every Sunday we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how does that happen? It happens by you and I taking our thoughts captive in order to obey Christ, to be the kind of people that he has not only called us to be, but he has empowered us to be by his grace and his mercy, not in order to win favor from God as we've already talked about, but it's because of spending time and being with Jesus that we begin to act and think and talk like Jesus. And when that happens, then people will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. But the problem is, is we don't do the good works so that people will see. We do the good works in the dark. We do the things that that please Jesus in the secret places. Not so that everybody can look at us, but we do it before our one audience of God. And people then will see that. And they'll give glory to your Father in heaven. See, that's that's what we've been at pains to talk about in 2 Corinthians, is that the Lord wants to not just save you, but he wants to continue to save you from the tools of the flesh of the world to say, if you just will strengthen yourself and show yourself mighty, if you can just say, I've got it together. See, Paul wants us to realize that that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is coming to an end of ourselves and saying, I am poor and needy. I have to go somewhere else into someone else for my sufficiency, for my commendation. And that's why we boast in Jesus, not on whether people know what our church is doing. That's a, that's a great danger, isn't it? To want to do things so that people will say, wow, I, I know about that church. They, they do awesome things in the city. May we not give in to that temptation to do for the applause of other people. <coughs> But may we be content with the secret, the quiet, the simple way of taking up our cross daily and following Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not call us to be what you are. (laughs) But you call us to come to this fountain of living water, to know that love, justice, and righteousness come first and foremost from you. And then after drinking from this fountain, then we can show love, justice, mercy, righteousness. Because of our acceptance first, you have called us to obey. We don't obey so that we can be accepted. Father, we thank you that our sufficiency and our commendation comes from you, and we don't have to conform our lives to please other people, but instead we can be content in who you have called us to be as a church and as individuals. And so, Father, we, we celebrate that, and we ask you to drive that truth, this truth, from chapter 10 even deeper into our hearts. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.